Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for telling us the story of Jesus. We thank you for writing on my heart every word of the most precious and the sweetest story that ever was heard. It is incredible that I am the object of your love and that I am the reason for Christ's passion. Now help me pay my full undivided attention to the anguish and agony of Jesus on the cross that I will love you more than before on this Tuesday of a Passion Week 2022. In the sweetest name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We began Passion Week 2022 with the famous songs or classic hymns for the suffering love of Christ yesterday. Before I introduce our second song this morning, let me tell you that why I'm doing the reflections on the redemptive suffering of Christ through songs. What I'm doing this week is not original. It's not original. Our Bible is full of songs. There is an even book called the Book of Psalms, which literally means a book of songs. We should remember the Psalms, original Psalms, were actually song. They are not just poetry, they are songs. You know, although we lost the original tunes. And it is still a great theological and spiritual contribution for anyone, especially the musicians, to create a fitting melodies for the Psalms. Also in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, we see plenty of examples of songs, such as Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 11, which we call Kenosis hymns. You know, Kenosis means emptying, that Christ emptying himself to the death and then being exalted by God. And also Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, which sings the preeminence of Christ. And also there's a brief hymns in Ephesians 5.14 and the 1 Timothy 3.16. So biblical writers, they use the songs to teach us about God and worship. So as I said before, true theology is a doxology. Theology goes with a doxology and vice versa. Theology and worship cannot be separated. John Stott, a great um, uh, British evangelical statesman correctly said this. He said, theology, our belief about God, and doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. On the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology, because it is not possible to worship an unknown God. On the other hand, there should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about the purely academic, intellectual, cognitive interest in God. True knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. You know, see, early Christians had the same conviction about theology and prayer. In Latin, they use, there is a statement called lex grandi as lex orandi, meaning law of belief is a law of a prayer. If you really believe, you will pray. And they are absolutely right. From the beginning, you know, theology and the worship or doxology always go together. And the true understanding of God or theology always leads us to worship and prayer. So what we do this week, this year's uh, Passion Week 
is that, let me tell you, it's a very biblically grounded, historically supported, and I hope experientially enhanced. And uh, probably I'll do the same thing for the Advent and sometime in the future. With that, let me introduce our song and songwriter today. We are going to meditate on And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. Let me first briefly talk about Charles Wesley's life and the historical background of the song. And then I will read the actual lyrics of the song and then share some reflections. Charles Wesley was born in 1707 in England, and he lived for 81 years. He had a famous older brother, three years older uh, than he, that's named John Wesley. Together, these Wesleyan brothers led the most significant spiritual revival movement of the modern world. Let me repeat that. Wesleyan brothers led the most significant spiritual revival movement of a modern world. As a historian, I mean every word of their statement. You know, there is a book called, book entitled, uh, England Before and After Wesley, and the you know, subtitle is uh, Revival and Social Reform. In that book, the writer claimed that two most important uh, people in modern history it's a Karl Marx and John Wesley. Think about that, you know, the magnitude of the statement. Charles Wesley was 18th of a 19th children born of Susanna and Samuel Wesley. Only 10 survived. Charles Wesley was actually preemie. He was uh, born prematurely. And Susanna Wesley was uh, worried <clears throat> if he could survive. In fact, he opened his eyes several weeks later on his actual due date. But he grew okay, and he later went to Oxford University. With his brother, John Wesley, and a few friends, they started a Christian fraternity called the Holy Club. And they really wanted to be holy. That's what they named the club, Holy Club. And the Holy Club members set aside time for praying, examining their spiritual life, and confessing uh, their, their sins to each other uh, during the week and studying the Bible. In addition, they took the food to the poor family, visited the lonely people in prison, taught orphans how to read. So they tried to serve God so systematically and so methodically every hour of the day that their jeering classmate at Oxford called them Methodist. Methodist. Now, uh, they also uh, celebrated communion frequently and fasted on Wednesdays and then Fridays uh, until 3 p.m. You know, uh, they even discussed it. They studied and discussed the Greek New Testament as well as some classics. So they are not just spiritual, they are intellectual too. Now, the problem of the Holy Club was that they devoted to all these great Christian duties without experiencing the grace of God personally, or what he called without conversion experiences. So in the case of Charles Wesley, he even went to Georgia, in the, at the time the colony of you know, Great Britain, 
Georgia with his brother as a missionary for a year. It was total fiasco and a huge disappointment to both brothers. Then in a year later, in May 21st, 1738, on the day of a Pentecost, interestingly, day of a Pentecost, at the age of 31, Charles Wesley was staying at the home of John Bray, a very poor mechanic, and the house was small in the middle of night. John Wesley heard Mr. Bray's sister talking aloud during a sleep. And she said, In the name of Jesus Christ, arise and believe, and thou shalt be healed of all thy infirmities. Somehow, her sleep talking woke up Charles Wesley, not only physically, but also you know, spiritually, that he read the Psalm 40, which he said, He lifted me out of a simple, a slimy pit, out of a mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. And also he read us Isaiah 40, which says, Comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her service has been completed, that her sins has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Charles Wesley somehow was moved and convicted in spirit and wrestled with this word until he came to rest in his faith, knowing that it is by faith we are all saved. Later he wrote in his journal, quote, I have found myself at peace with God and rejoice in the hope of the love of Christ. End of quote. Charles Wesley became a born again there. Actually, three days before his brother John Wesley experienced his own conversion or what we call Aldergate experience, where he said he felt his heart strangely warmed up. Isn't it incredible that God saved both Wesley brothers in the same week and they changed our history forever? You know, this can happen to our BIPs. Seriously. Let's pray that happened to our BIPs, hopefully this week, this Easter or this year. You know, Charles Wesley wrote two hymns right after this conversion, and the Can It Be, that our song today is one of them. So this is one of the first 65 songs, 65 songs. Do you guys remember how many songs, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, you know, Fanny Crosby wrote yesterday? 9,000. Before Fanny Crosby was, there was a Charles Wesley. 65 songs he wrote in his life. And now let's look at the song. Let's look at the song and reflect the spiritual lyrics. The first stanza, do we have that? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, please look at the first stanza. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Die he for me who causes pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
Do you notice the entire first stanza was filled with the exclamations in the question forms? There are four rhetorical questions. Four rhetorical questions. Can it be that I should gain any interest in my Savior's blood? Number two, me who caused his pain? Number three, for me whom he pursued to death? Number four, how can it be that my God should die for me? I want you to remember this today. Here we find the important theological truth and spiritual lesson. That is, when we encounter God and experience His forgiveness and love like the forgiven prodigal that we learned in the Cornerstone Bible study, we have more than answers. We have questions. In fact, God's saving, forgiving love always give us a questions. That is, why does God love me so much? Why does he love me so much? When we experience God so loved me, we always ask the question, why does he love me so much? And these questions are more satisfying than any definitive answer. Encounter with God's grace always leads us to search and seek more of his love. Charles Wesley actually published this hymn under the title of Amazing Love. Amazing Love. But somehow, publisher, you know, thought, and I agree with the publisher, that a hymn is, uh, you know, better known as the end can it be. You know, instead of a definitive, you know, title, they wanted to put it in the question mark. And can it be? You know, by the way, before Isaac Newton, you know, the convert of John Wesleyan Brothers, you know, revival movement, you know, 50 years later, that he wrote an amazing grace, that was amazing love. That always leads us to deeper questions. Let me read one more stanza, second stanza. Look at the second stanza. This mystery all, the immortal dies, who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn, Sarah tries to sound the depth of a love divine. This mercy all, let earth adore, let angels' minds inquire no more. This mercy all, let earth adore, let angels' minds inquire no more. You know, many Christian singers and performers, including ours today, actually skip the second stanza, but I actually love it very much. Here, Charles Wesley described the mystery of the paradox of a divine love. He said, how can God die? And he said this way, the immortal, that means God dies. Is it possible for God to die? The impossible, the incomprehensible thing happens to our God. So that even angels, the firstborn angel, the angel of angels, the seraph, the seraphim, the one who hover around the throne of God, wonder and inquire. See? Truth of God always asks us questions. You know? So evangelicals in America don't settle with easy answers. We need to ask deeper questions about God and ourselves and our world. The easy answer evangelicalism is destroying our, our churches and our world and our country. Yes, when you get to heavens and fellowship with the angels, they all want our answers. They all want, our experience, want to hear our experience of that mystery. Rest of the hymns, the lyrics, you will just sing together. 
but I want to tell you the most repeating word in this hymn is the first person pronoun. I, my, me, and mine. It's not that God loved the humanity and gave his son for salvation of humanity. God loved me. God loved me. God loved you. God loved each one of us. God loved me to death. That is a Passion Week. That was we singing. Let's sing this song as a prayer. Let's sing together. Mm-hmm.